my first Tuesday home time for 2023. And of course, it's Joan Bartlett. And a Happy New Year, and I hope all is well. And that 23 will be a good one for you. Today, we travel to Tanzania with Catherine Cummins from Mining Watch Canada to expose Barrett Gold's deadly treatment of local people. Then across the world to Peru, where people are demanding the ousting of the coup government. Ben Radford is following that story. Fukushima, where 12 years ago we witnessed the nuclear disaster. Now the company is planning what could be another disaster, releasing the water containing radioactive materials and others into the Pacific Ocean. I'll be speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. And finally, PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, back from two months in Cuba, part one of the interview today. No Kevin Healy's day, perhaps next week. I'm speaking now with Catherine Cummins, co-manager of Mining Watch Canada, about the conduct of Barrett Gold in Tanzania. Catherine, in October just past, Mining Watch Canada conducted another human rights investigation at the North Mara gold mine in Tanzania, which has resulted in the third lawsuit on human rights abuses at this mine. What's the history of abuse connected to this mine? Exactly where in Tanzania is it and who are the traditional owners? So the mine is located near Tarime, which is the, the, the nearest town, and it's right up close to the Kenyan border, and it's on the ancestral land of the Kuria people. And the Kuria are traditionally herders, cattle herders, so they need a large piece of land because their cattle roam around in order to get the water and the food that they need. And so the herders follow the cattle and the cattle roam around. That is the way you still see cattle herding going on in that part of of Tanzania and also Kenya on the other side of the border. But these Korea also had discovered that there was gold quite close to the surface of their land. And so they were also mining gold, but just in a small-scale mining way and just, you know, the, the near-to-the-surface gold. So that was like a subsidiary type of income for the Korea. The mine has operated since 2002, and an early owner was another Canadian mining company called Placer Dome. And in 2006, Placer Dome was bought out by Barrick. And Barrick has had a majority ownership stake in the mine ever since. It has been run through various subsidiaries. What did the local people have to do with the mine? Did they give permission for this mine or were they railroaded? No, the problem from the very beginning has been that the Korea were essentially moved off the land that they have traditionally um, herded their cattle on and, and done small-scale mining on in order to make way for this mine, which has four pits at the moment and large waste rock dumps and a very large tailings impoundment. And so from the very beginning, there have been problems because people were moved off their land either without compensation or without adequate compensation, but they weren't actually properly relocated. They were just kind of pushed off from where they were. And so the the people now live all around these mines and these waste rock dumps and this tailings impoundment, you know, they're very close. And there's public roads that run like right along the the waste rock dumps and right along the the pit. 
there has been conflict both over the way people were moved off their land and weren't properly compensated from the very beginning. But what has happened also is that the, the Korea soon discovered that there's enough residual gold in the waste rock. So this is what the company is dumping and which has no economic value to the company. But there's enough gold in there that they could eke out a living by going into these waste rock piles and finding the gold that's left in these waste rock dumps. And this was something that whole families participated in. So there'd be men, women, and children in these waste rock dumps. I have lots and lots and lots of pictures that I've taken where, you know, you can just see the families in these waste rock dumps. But because they're officially trespassing, they've always been subject to potential violence by the security at the mine. And in the past, often what we were told when I was doing interviews, and, you know, Mining Watch has been doing interviews there since 2014. We went there yearly from 2014 to 2019 until COVID made it impossible for us to travel, and but we've since been back again. What we were often told was that people could make arrangements with the security guards at the mine and that, you know, for payment, they would allow people into the waste rock dumps. But then if, as they put it, the white man came or a higher-up management from the mine, if they were arriving, then they would start shooting the people. You know, it's been a very messy situation for a very, very long time. And the first lawsuit that was actually filed on behalf of plaintiffs who had been the victims of excess use of force by mine security was actually filed in 2013, but the reports about the violence at the mine date back to at least 2008. Well, so the first lawsuit was filed in 2013, and that lawsuit was, was settled in 2015. And so we started going there in 2014 while that first lawsuit was, was ongoing. That lawsuit was settled in 2015, but we were still interviewing so many people who were being targeted by mine security, you know, being shot or beaten or the subject of all kinds of what they call non-lethal, use of non-lethal weapons such as um, tear gas canisters that were shot at them or what they call rubber bullets. But these are also, can also be very deadly or at least very damaging. You know, even though there had already been a lawsuit that had been settled, we were still interviewing so many people who were coming to us every year when we went there, there were long lines of people who were maimed or who were there on behalf of relatives who had been killed. And so by 2020, there was, you know, a very large number of recordings that we had made of all these new victims. And so there was a new lawsuit filed. And that lawsuit is actually ongoing. But the killings and the maimings didn't stop. What's interesting is that in 2019, in September 2019, Barrick was now under new ownership. So we have Mark Bristow now as the CEO, and he decided to take over control of the mine. So he bought out minority shareholders and took over complete control of the mine, except 16% was granted to the Tanzanian government. And at that point, it became possible to actually sue Barrick in Canada. The other two lawsuits were against the subsidiary and those were UK-based subsidiaries. Those two cases were in the UK, but then since September 19, since Barrick took over full control of the mine directly, now this lawsuit has been filed in Canada, which is really important because Barrick is considered quite a flagship company in Canada, gets a lot of political support, has never, of course, faced legal action in Canada. So this is really an important case. 
So, in a sense, is the government of Tanzania complicit in the violence? This will be, I think, part of what will be sorted out through this lawsuit, but it is certainly problematic that the government of Tanzania now has 16% ownership in the mine because one of the things when I was there in September and doing interviews and, of course, again, you know, hearing from people who, who've been targeted by mine security that they were telling me that they now don't have anywhere to go anymore. So at least before when the Tanzanian government was not in an ownership position in the mine. And quite frankly, the Tanzanian government was was always in quite a contentious relationship with this project, with this mine, because there were allegations of non-payment of taxes and allegations that more gold was being exported than was being reported. So there was quite a contentious relationship, but this at least gave people who'd been harmed by mine security or you know family members of people who'd been killed they felt that they could go to their village leaders, they could go to their hamlet leaders, and they could go to the district uh, authorities and file complaints against the mine. And now they were telling me the problem is now the government is saying this is our mine and all the elected officials feel that they have to toe the line. You know, this has made things more difficult for people to actually file their complaints somewhere. Are the members of the mine security local people? There's two types of mine security. This, again, there's some changes that were made when Mark Bristow took over control of the mine. So there's always been private mine security, which is paid for directly by the company. They came from all over. They would be brought in all over the world, in fact. And then there's always been an arrangement with the Tanzanian police. And the Tanzanian police, of course, are armed. And it has traditionally been the case that the private security was also armed, but not with guns, but with other what they call non-lethal means of violence, really, against local people. And again, I have to just point out, though, that, that non-lethal, those non-lethal tools that they had were also very damaging and, and, in fact, also sometimes led to death. But what happened when Bristow came in is he changed up the private security and brought in this Tanzanian outfit called Ngovomoja and made that new outfit not armed at all. So now the private security Ngovomoja is not armed at all, but the police are still armed. And so it's the police that are shooting people, beating people as well. In a way, it's become worse because we don't have those non-lethal means of, of controlling people who trespass on the mine site. And those not, again, those non-lethal tools were also very damaging, but at least it wasn't directly a bullet. That is now no longer the case. People are just being shot. As you said, you've travelled there regularly, seven times, I believe. What happens when you get there? Do the, do the mine operators or the police know you're there? Are you visible? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to be a little bit careful in how I answer this because it, this is clearly a difficult place for us to be. The company would prefer, I think, that we not be there and that we not hear from people directly about what's going on. So we have quite a few people in the villages who, who know us and who are happy to work with us and who look forward to us coming there so that people can at least come to us and tell their stories and so there's never a problem actually and people are very keen you know people who've lost loved ones 
um, and people who, who, who've been maimed. And, you know, the injuries that people sustain are, are really life-altering injuries. It means that in the very often young men, and it means that, you know, young men who used to be breadwinners for younger members of their family and, and able to look after older members of their family are now themselves in need of care. So this is very problematic for the families and because they know that we come there and because they know that we care and we, we want to hear their stories and now they're also quite aware of the fact that it's not just telling us their stories but that there are also lawsuits that can be filed and so people have some chance of getting some remedy for the harm that they've endured, they're very keen to talk to us. I, I'm not going to go into details about how those conversations happen but we, we do manage to be there and to be able to document those cases. There's no retribution for those people who do take part in that lawsuit? Well, we're hoping not. You know, that certainly shouldn't happen, but that's always a concern. That is absolutely a concern. And, of course, when people who've lost loved ones or who have themselves been harmed are approached by lawyers, this is always a choice they have to make, whether they are going to join a lawsuit. And what I can tell you is that the number of people in this lawsuit is only a fraction of the number of people we've interviewed. So there will be people who who may decide that they don't want to take legal action because of those kinds of fears. And, And some may not decide not to take legal action because the lawyers are always very upfront that this can take a very, very long time. It's really beyond belief and really unacceptable that this is even necessary, that people need to weigh these things and that this is is continuing to happen. This is the third lawsuit now on the exact same issues, the issues of excess use of force by private and public police mind security. It really at this point seems like it's just sort of business as usual for Barrick, that this is just how they've decided they're going to operate this mine. And they'll just litigate these cases in a, in a serial fashion. And we, you know, we all need to be aware that the, the number of people who are actually in these suits and who hopefully will get remedy through these suits is not all of the cases that are out there. So there's a lot of families that for one reason or another have decided not to participate in legal action. They really should have access to remedy in a non-legal way. You know, Barrick is supposed to have a functioning remedy mechanism at this mine, a grievance mechanism, and I can tell you that a lot of the time we spend on the ground is not just interviewing victims, but also uh, looking into the grievance mechanism. And when when Barrick took over this mine and Mark Bristow, you know, took control of the mine, in the interviews we did in September and October, we also interviewed people who had been involved in the grievance mechanism from the communities, and they said they were immediately told they could go home, and the grievance mechanism has been completely defunct. So there really isn't anywhere else for people to go than to take legal action. But surely if the company was doing the right thing in the first place, you wouldn't need a grievance. You wouldn't need a exactly. remedy. Yeah. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. And it's completely bizarre and absurd that people who are entering these waste rock dumps, you know, should be shot at at all. And the other thing that's really important for your listeners to understand, and, you know, this is what we found in our interviews and it's also in the in the legal filing, if you've had a chance to look at that, a lot of these people are actually shot from behind. They're fleeing, they're trying to get away, and they're shot. 
So these are not people who are threatening anyone or need to be shot because they're already leaving the area. People have also been shot just in the villagers as bystanders because, so again, as I mentioned, you know, there's roads, there's public roads that go right up along these waste rock dumps. There's also small schools there and there's villages there. And sometimes the police will be chasing people and shooting as they're chasing them and completely innocent people who are just sitting around in the village get shot. That's also been a consistent problem, you know, as long as we've been going there since 2014. And you're listening to an interview with Catherine Cummins, co-manager of Mining Watch Canada, about the behaviour of Barrett Gold in Tanzania. How far away from the actual mine areas are the waste dumps that they might be causing disruption to the mining process? They're kind of all around the pits, actually, but they're outside of the pits. So they're really, but they're really close to the pits. So they're not bringing this waste far away. They're just dumping it sort of outside of the pits, but they're not in the way of any of the mine vehicles or anything like that. So they're actually, you can just, when you drive up to the mine, one of the first things you see is one of these huge waste rock dumps. And then you drive right along the foot of the waste rock dump. The roads go right along the foot of these waste rock dumps. But these are public roads. I mean, not the mine roads, right? The mine roads are inside. And, and the mine, you don't see the mine vehicles out on those public roads. How big is the community? You say they're spread out now. And you say that they've been shifted off their land. It's not very easy to shift people off their land because they can't go anywhere else because it's someone else's land. Exactly. This is the problem. So they're all living sort of bunched up around these waste rock dumps and around these pits. The other thing we discovered in September when we were there, September and October, is that Barrick now wants to expand the mine, wants to add new pits. And there's a, a quite a large area called Comarera, which is a village, one of the villages called Comarera. And they're now trying to move people out of Comarera. So we also did interviews with these folks who are now being forcibly evicted. And that, again, is happening in a very brutal way. So I have no direct interviews from the original people who were moved off in 2002. But I have met with with some of them, and I know that there's ongoing concerns about that. And There's quite a lot of literature on that as well. I mean, even academics have written about how badly that initial forced eviction happened and the ongoing grievances from that but now it's happening again so people are being forcibly evicted from Comarera and it's happening in a very violent way and they're not being properly compensated for what they're losing and you know one of the people we interviewed has already lost all of their land and is now landless has had to move into a city a nearby city called Mwanza and try to eke out a living as a landless person, even though that family has been on that land for generations. It's history repeating itself. We've written to Barak about this in some detail. Um, the letter will be made public. Oh, the letter is actually public. The letter has been published. Our letter has been published, and Barak has now written back. And once again, it's just denial. It's saying, no, nope, that's all happening in a good way. There's no, no forced evictions. People are somehow happily you know, leaving their land and they're all being, being properly compensated. And no, no mention of the violence. But we interview people. We, they show us their wounds. They show us how, you know, the statements that get made about the, what the crops are and the trees, and et cetera, on their land and how those statements get changed so that the land gets devalued. I have to say, you know, having 
spoken to these people directly and hearing the same story over and over again from people who don't know each other necessarily, this is not a good thing that's happening right now. And Barak is again denying the reality. But how can they deny it when there's already been two court cases? So there's the two things, right? There's the forced evictions, which they're now denying. And now there's been two court cases. There's now a third court case. And of course, Barrick is contesting the facts that are being put forth in this third court case. But what about the first two? Well, the first one has been settled. So when you settle a case out of court, the company continues to argue that it was never found guilty because it settled the case. And it will argue that it settled it out of the goodness of its heart and, you know, because it wanted to settle things for these poor people, but it won't, it doesn't accept responsibility. The second lawsuit that's now was filed in 2020 is still ongoing in the UK. If that case goes all the way to the end and all of the documents are, are made public, which doesn't happen when a case is settled like the first, the first case was, well, then we'll be able to see all of the evidence and in the court may find Barrett guilty if, if that's how it turns out. Barrett just argues these are allegations. They're not, they haven't been proven in court. Does the Canadian <laughs> government have any role in this situation? Absolutely they do. Absolutely. I mean, we've been really open with the Canadian government through our, our High Commission in Dar es Salaam. So I have met with people in the High Commission. I, they have seen our reports. We've got access to information documents that shows that they're very aware of the reports that we've been putting out and they dismiss them. Never has the High Commission reached out to us and said, hey, you know, boy, this is really troubling stuff you're putting out. We'd like to talk to you. We had to go to them and then they were just very closed mouthed. But we know through access to information, information, but also things that are just in the public realm and the media, that Barrick has received a lot of political support. In general, Barrick receives a lot of political support from Canada, but particularly in Tanzania. And particularly during the previous government when um, Barrick was being accused of tax evasion and the mine was actually shut down for a while because the Tanzanian government was, was accusing Barrick of also removing gold without properly documenting how much gold was being removed. And during that period, the High Commission stepped in to try and broker an agreement between the government of Tanzania and, and Barrick. And there's a picture that we have on one of our reports where you can see the High Commissioner beaming while the chairman of the board of Barrick and the then president are shaking hands. So they get a lot of political support and the Canadian government absolutely needs to assess its its relationship with this company. Does Barrick have a history in other mines in other parts of the world? Yes, unfortunately, it really does. And, you know, as Mining Watch, we've been quite involved in a number of these other mines. As you know, and as your listeners may remember, um, I've been involved at the mine in Porgra since 2005, been traveling up there quite often, and it's quite shocking that a lot of the exact same issues have been happening in Porgra as are happening in Tanzania. So again, excess use of force by mine security in Papua New Guinea, this also included a lot of uh, rape and gang rape cases, which the company finally had to acknowledge, and 119 women received some remedy, some small remedy from the company. They're still saying that was not an adequate remedy for what they endured, and 11 other women actually got an out-of-court settlement. 
But the number of cases of men and boys who've been shot and beaten and women and girls who've been raped and beaten far exceeds the number of people, the small number, the handful really of people who've gotten remedy. So that's Porgra. Then in the Philippines, there's a mine in Marinduque where Barrick is being sued right now by the government of that province for having left behind a mine that has very, very serious environmental impacts in, in three major, two major rivers and a, and a large open bay where waste was dumped. I've just come back from the Dominican Republic, which is, I have never been there before, but there's a really massive, great big barrack mine there. It's actually the biggest gold mine, or one of the biggest gold mines in Latin America. People have been filing complaints against that mine for many, many years. This was the first opportunity I had to go there. A whole range of concerns, but mainly concerns to do with contamination of water and with people who need to be relocated because they're living far too close to a a huge dam, a really large dam that's holding back waste and that has been considered a a critical um, piece of infrastructure by Barrick itself. Barrick has admitted that that dam needs to be worked on, and there's people living right at the toe of that dam who are terrified. And they're also dealing with constant noise and constant lights from that dam and dust in their houses, and they shouldn't be there. They should they should have been moved a long time ago. And the water that, that they used to be able to drink, they can't drink anymore, so they're, they're having to provi- be provided bottled water, They've been complaining about this for a really long time and their concerns are being ignored. And then there's the Valadero mine in Argentina where I can't speak to that one directly, but um, we have been just reporting quite a lot on that mine. My colleague who works in Latin America has done a lot of work on that mine, but the um, special rapporteur on toxics has just issued a report saying that there has been five spills by Barrick Gold at that mine, and these spills have not been acknowledged and not been um, reported, which have caused contamination of of local waterways. So I'm just naming a few. We could go on and on. Catherine, aren't there international laws which international mine or national miners have to adhere to when they're working in other countries? There aren't. I mean, there aren't any international laws. There are guidelines and there are standards. And for each of these mines that I've mentioned, it can easily just be argued that Barrick is not adhering to international standards What with respect to um, relocation of people, with respect to um, mine safety and dam safety, with respect to non-contamination of, of water, in all these ways. These are all breaches of international standards, but these standards are not laws. And So in Canada, what we're now pushing for, and this is really important um, that Canada implement legislation that would hold our Canadian companies to account in Canada for the harm they do overseas. I won't go into all the technical of it, but we have come up together with, with about 40 other organizations in Canada with draft legislation. And March, that draft legislation was tabled as a private member's bill If the government of Canada were to implement that legislation, it would make Canadian parent companies responsible for the human rights and environmental harm caused by all of their subsidiaries and all of their business relations, which includes contractors. They have to report on the risks that their 
putting people and the environment too through their operations, not just the parent company, but the subsidiary and the contractors. And if people anywhere in the world would be harmed by that company or allege that they've been harmed by that company, they could take the company to court in Canada. Right now, that's very, very hard to do, even though we have some cases, and of course, this, this case against Barrick has just been filed, there's going to be a lot of legal hurdles that the lawyers are going to have to overcome for the people in Tanzania to get remedy. Whereas if this legislation were passed, they would not have to argue whether Canada is, for example, the appropriate forum for this case to be heard. So the, the two big legal hurdles right now are what we call forum, whether Canada is the appropriate place. Barrick is al already indicating in its responses to this lawsuit that it's going to fight on forum. It's going to argue that the case should be heard in Tanzania, not in Canada. And the other major legal hurdle is Barrick is going to argue or generally what companies argue is that it's, it's not the parent company that's responsible, it's the subsidiary. But if this legislation was passed, then a parent company could not make those either one of those two legal arguments. So it would be much easier for people anywhere in the world who've been harmed by a Canadian multinational to take that multinational to court in Canada. What's the likelihood that it will be passed? Oh my gosh, it's going to be a huge battle and especially the mining industry is going to fight this tooth and nail. So it's going to be tough, but the one really positive thing about this is that this kind of legislation has already been passed in France, and it's being considered by other European countries and by the EU. That's really significant. This is not something that we just dreamt up in Canada. We're actually standing on the shoulders of civil society organizations that have already pushed this legislation through in France, it's called Mandatory Human Rights and Environmental Due Diligence Legislation, a mouthful, but it's been passed in France and it's being advocated for in Germany and the Netherlands and other European countries and now the EU has taken it up as something that's going to be an EU directive. So it's being, it's going through the legal process at, at the EU level and, and we'll be pointing to that in Canada to say, look, we're behind the eight ball here. Like we need to catch up with what the Europeans are doing. Finally, Catherine, it's like colonisation has never ended. You know, these companies wouldn't get away with it if they were mining in their own countries. I don't want to say that our rules and laws in Canada are perfect. I think there's quite a lot of harm that gets done in Canada as well and a lot of corporate capture by major big mining companies in Canada of the regulators. But... The kinds of things we're seeing in Porgra, in Papua New Guinea, the kinds of things we're seeing in Tanzania at the North Mara Mine, where there's just ongoing, literally ongoing shootings and killings and maimings of, of the local indigenous peoples. No, we don't have anything like that happening in Canada. Thank you for, for continuing to be interested in these, in these cases. It's, it's really important. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au.
Hello, 3CR listeners. I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years, and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. For many people outside the country of Peru, the focal point is the 15th century Inca citadel of Machu Picchu, located in the eastern southern Peru on a 2,430 metre high mountain range. But today the focus is the social and political history of Peru, leading to the present day of weeks of political violence, with police unleashing deadly violence on the supporters of the deposed and now imprisoned President Pedro Castillo who came to power in June 2021 on a leftist program. I spoke with journalist Ben Radford for an understanding of the violence which is wracking Peru today. Ben, unfortunately for the people of Peru, violence is no stranger. Where do you pinpoint it beginning? All of Peru's history, I'd say, is is important in um, understanding the current situation. probably starts with initial Spanish colonisation in the 1500s, which firstly you know, decimated a lot of the indigenous population, especially along the coast, then you know, through violence and through the introduction of diseases like smallpox. And that was, I guess, the start of Peru's subjugation on the global stage. Um, it was marked by lots of mining exports and essentially the, the pillaging of Peru's natural resources. So if that's when it started, but probably most relevant is Peru's recent history, um, which is marked by neoliberalism. So basically most of the the 1900s, when you had the real sort of entrance of, of US capitalism and imperialism from probably about the 1920s onwards, and that's what really, I guess, cemented Peru as this, this real export-based economy primarily agriculture and mining, and this continued for, for most of the century. But it wasn't until probably the 90s that under Alberto Fujimori, who was a dictator for, for 10 years, that we saw this, this real entrenchment of neoliberalism, which I guess marks Peru's current say, economic structure. As a result, most of the wealth is now concentrated in the hands of this capitalist class, a hugely unequal country, and there's been a chronic underinvestment in things like healthcare, welfare, education, and essentially other things to address people's needs. What Fukimori did was he, he brought in this new constitution, which essentially privatised lots of government services and industry. He, he introduced this by essentially 
shutting down Congress, suspending the Constitution, or the old one, purging the judiciary, and then implementing this new Constitution, which allowed for the privatisation of gas, of water, electricity, education, mining, and opened the country up for or even further exploitation from all these transnational corporations, uh, mostly US, US companies. And as a result, the, the cost of, of all these basic goods like electricity and petrol and water went up several times over, as well as helping concentrate the power and the wealth in the hands of this elite. So that's the sort of the recent history that you now have this situation where most of the country doesn't have a say in, in, in the political structures of the country and a lot of them, you know, live in abject poverty. Peru's sort of position in, uh, in the global economic order as a, an exporter of primary goods, mostly metals, means that there's all these companies that make huge profits, which barely any of it goes to the majority of people. And then I, I talked about this underinvestment in healthcare that was a result of this, this neoliberal policy that was brought in which means that Peru is one of the, the worst affected countries in the world when COVID hit, had the highest death rate per capita in the world. I mean, like everywhere in the world, it's the poorest people that are hit the hardest by COVID, especially in, in Peru where 90% of the urban population, they work in the informal sector, meaning they don't have labour protections, obviously can't work from home. When COVID hit, a lot of people are faced with the choice of either working and running the risk of being exposed to COVID or going hungry, essentially. You know, due to all this underinvestment in healthcare, the waves of COVID put a lot of pressure on the healthcare system. And, I mean, they're still experiencing their... They're going through their fifth COVID wave right now, which is placing a huge, huge amount of pressure on the healthcare system. Um, so, be, I, mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is this neoliberal system has contributed to this material poverty that, I guess, has been... Even though Peru GDP has increased year on year up until recently, you know, the World Bank and the IMF would say that Peru is a, you know, has, has experienced strong economic growth, which it did. In reality, is that most of that wealth was concentrated in the hands of a few, this select class. So that is sort of, I guess, paints a brief picture of the recent, the recent history of Peru leading up to the, the current situation. Ben, would you say that compared to some other countries in South America that there's a larger indigenous population? Not as much as Bolivia, for example, but, you know, definitely compared to some places like Argentina and, and Chile, Peru does have this, this high indigenous population, but it's, it's almost divided along geographic lines. Uh, most of the coastal parts, sort of the west coast of Peru, which I guess represents probably the most heavily colonised and, and easily accessible part that has a lower proportion of Indigenous people, whereas if you go inland, um, sort of up in the highlands and in, and in the mountains, there and in the south in particular, which a lot of the areas that border Bolivia, there's a really, really high um, Indigenous population. And historically, they've been overlooked. I guess there's this saying that that Lima is, which is, you know, the capital of Peru, essentially could be a, a different country. The rest of Peru, in particular, these, these poor southern, often farming regions, because most of Peru's politicians or the political class are essentially rich white people from Lima. In these poorer regions in the south and inland, 
also the reason, regions that have been heavily exploited by these huge companies, particular mining companies, who, you know, through this huge push by US imperialist interests that went into these areas and established all these mines, which were on, you know, the traditional lands of, of all these indigenous people and, you know, extracted all these minerals, particularly copper is one of Peru's biggest exports. All of that money essentially went offshore or went the sort of elite class in Peru that owned owned these mines if they weren't the international companies. So not only have they not seen basically any of the, the economic, essentially any of the wealth produced from, from activities like this, but they've also been actively dispossessed, you know, attacked and, and subjugated by the both the, the forces, you know, within Peru and the, as I've mentioned, these sort of transnational corporations. And of course there's no such thing as land rights. Well, no, because that was a that's you know that was another part of the the constitution that was that was brought in by Fukimori is that it essentially put private interests first. Whereas where you look you look at Bolivia, for example, that's had what what I would call this or what many would call a socialist government since since Evo Morales came to power, is that he basically enshrined the rights of nature and indigenous land rights into the constitution that he introduced. And, you know, that's not to say that now Bolivia is free of all of all land conflicts. There's also problems there with conflicts over mining in particular, um, especially with lithium mining, but it still provides this, this constitutional protection or recognition of indigenous land rights. But where you look at Peru, there, there just isn't that there. And so any sort of indigenous land rights claim is subservient to the interests of private corporations. Has there been indigenous movement, say, in the last 50 years to try and challenge some of the the rich that are taking all the resources and leaving them with nothing? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's always, there's always resistance, you know, when there's been huge, huge mines that have, they've tried to establish, that there's always been resistance to that. A big one in particular was they're called Ronderos, which was essentially set up at the time when there was this group, this sort of really, say, quite extremist group, trying to sort of launch this armed uprising against against the government uh, called the, the Shining Path. But as a result of their, you know, they killed government members, but then they also killed a lot of community members. In, in these areas, but then on the other side, you had the government who was essentially unleashing the military and police and torturing people who were suspected to be Shining Path members and, you know, killed thousands of people. And so the Ronderos were basically community-armed patrols that were set up to, to protect communities from both government violence and Shining Path violence, and they would you know, patrol communities, and that was, I guess, a grassroots community-based mechanism that was set up to resist resist both both groups. Even recently, you look at, after this, I mean, maybe we'll talk, talk a bit about it in a bit, but the most recent coup, um, which unseated Castillo, has been widespread protests of that, and it's been led by uh, Indigenous groups, primarily in the South. Um, there's been huge, huge uprisings, and they've done things like blockaded roads 
and led protests. They've travelled all the way to the capital, Lima, to protest what was a what is a you know coup against a democratically elected leader. I guess my main point is there's always been resistance, but whenever there has been, the government has has unleashed all of this all of this violence. I mean, you look there's there's already more than 40 people that have been killed by the police or the military since the coup at the start of December last year. And of course it was those most marginalised people who elected Pedro Castillo to presidency in July 2021. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, the vote was, even though you know, he, only, he won by the, the tiniest of margins, the vote was split along again. The vote that he got was primarily from poor inland areas with high indigenous populations. You know, they're the poor the poorest parts of Peru. That was his that was his voter base that brought him to power. And then now you have that you know, those same areas uh, protesting the the coup against Castillo. But it's not for them it's not just about protecting Castillo. This is this is more than that. It's a protest against this government or this political class that has done nothing but but oppress oppress these people and overlook these people. So even though, you know, a lot of the protests have been calling for Castillo's release because he's he's currently in prison, pre trial detention they're calling it, uh, pending this court case against him, which is, you know, basically led by all these right wing judges that represent this rich economic class. So they've called for his release, but you know, the the, the demands of the protest go beyond that. Well, first, they're calling for a resignation of, of the current president or the coup president, President Duarte, but they're also calling for a new constitution. They're calling for the closure of Congress, and they're calling for this constitution, and they want it to be they want it to be drafted by a constituent assembly, um, which is essentially representatives from from unions, from indigenous groups. So I guess it's more it's more what this represents that a, a school teacher, Castillo, school teacher, and a unionist from this poor rural background has been ousted by this racist, mostly Lima-based oligarchy. And even some of the groups that are protesting now were, were critical of Castillo, but they've sort of been united in this in this condemnation of the of the coup and calls for his release. There's been an indefinite strike which started a few weeks ago. And there's been a national strike that was called by farmers, women's rights movements, teachers' unions, as well as university students. But the thing is, a lot of a lot of these protests haven't really received any any coverage or very little coverage in the in the mainstream media, both uh, in Peru or internationally. Or when they have, they've focused on protests that you know have become violent, which was usually as a result of the police and military coming in and, and either, you know, launching tear gas or opening fire, which they have with live live ammunition. They fired bullets into protest. Um, but still, these, these corporate-owned media outlets have, have tried to reinforce this narrative, um, which is a sort of age-old strategy in Peru to label the protesters as terrorists or terucos or this, paint them as this violent minority who don't represent the interests of the people. Which is just not true. There's been there's been massive uprisings, but the media has downplayed these, or you know presented it as just like a few small groups, when in reality it's been all across these regions, even in Lima, which is historically like a 
urban working poor that, that you know condemning condemning the, this this violence against them and the, as well as the undemocratic coup. Just going back to the time that he was in power from July 2021. What was he able to achieve, particularly because he didn't have control of Congress? Yeah, the truth is, not a lot, because basically from, from day one, or even in the lead-up to his election, all through the presidential campaign, this rich oligarchy that's essentially entrenched in, in the political establishment, in the media, in the judiciary, they worked to, to undermine him and his and his political program. So this was in the form of, of smear campaigns and, yes, yeah, like scare campaigns, and which forced a lot of his cabinet to resign, blocked any legislation that his party put forward. Because even though his Castillo's party initially had the most number of representatives in Congress of any party, the rest of it was dominated numerically by this alliance of, of far-right and, yeah, right-wing parties that basically played this obstructionist role. So... They blocked 30 bills that his cabinet presented, and you know some of those bills were related to things like eliminating immunity from criminal prosecution for high-ranking government officials, things like increasing mining company taxes, and trying to bring in this agrarian reform. And you know from the get-go, they opened there was all these politicians that openly declared they would say this to the media. They said. We're dedicated, we're, we've dedicated ourselves to getting rid of him. And so they passed all these laws that restricted his, his powers and they changed articles of the constitution which granted them more power. And essentially this whole time they laid the groundwork for event, for the eventual coup and the judiciary which it was controlled by this, this right wing majority. They opened all these, these criminal investigations against Castillo and his ministers. And uh, even though there wasn't any evidence, this gave an opportunity for the, media, the corporate owned media to essentially jump on and, and launch all these campaigns and, and disinformation against him. But that was, you know, even that's just within Congress. But then outside of Congress, you have all these powerful forces of the, the business elite that work to undermine him as well. And there was lots of examples of this. One was there was this group of business people that met up. They were called they called themselves the Cofriado del Bisco, and they met in secret and openly discussed strategies to destabilise the government through things like paying people to go on strike or bribing news outlets to run anti-Castillo stories. So yeah, all of this all of this is what blocked Castillo from being able to put any legislation through. But then on, there is also this, this criticism of Castillo that he wasn't able to mobilise the sort of grassroots support, would have stood up to the, to the, the manoeuvring in Congress. Because obviously, you know, m- most power is in, is in the grassroots. So there was that, that sort of criticism from the left that he, wasn't, he didn't maintain his, his grassroots supporter base. But from day one... The establishment essentially worked worked against him, and you know they were finally successful in in ousting him. Wondering what the reaction has been from the neighbouring countries in South South America. You've got a a leftist president now in Brazil. You've got a a soft leftist in Chile, and you've got a a leftist in Colombia. 
What's been the reaction from the different countries to what's been happening in Peru in the last, well, the last year and a half, I suppose? Well, yeah, I mean, internationally, uh, basically all of the the left-wing or, you know, even you'd say left, left-leaning governments in, in the region, uh, like Bolivia, Argentina, Mexico, Colombia, they all condemned the coup. They called for Castillo's release. And you know they acknowledged that this was an an, an undemocratic manoeuvre against him, and they also denounced this this campaign, this essentially year and a half campaign or more than a year and a half campaign against Castillo that blocked you know his government's mandate. And even more recently, Evo Morales, who's well, he's no longer president. He used to be president of Bolivia. He tried to travel to Peru to. You know, I guess show support and, I don't know, help, help out, but he was blocked from entering the country by the new coup government. And then, you know, within the, within the country as well, they've denounced it. Like there's been, there's been huge uprisings in these really poor areas and that, that doesn't look like it's stopping anytime soon. You know, they've taken over airports and, and as I said before, blockaded roads and, Shown this continued resistance to what's rightly, rightly being called a coup or was a coup. I suppose when you talk about the history of Peru, it's it's not surprising that this happened. But it may be surprising that the people didn't get more organised earlier than this and brought someone like Castillo into power much earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even yeah, throughout his his tenure, there were there were protests, nothing like what we've seen now. There were protests against Congress and in support of the government, and also you know calling on the government or pushing the government, if you like, to to make changes. I mean, obviously they were blocked legislatively, but they were calling on him to fulfil his mandate and try and bring in bring in the new constitution. I guess the other thing that you know, I'd like to talk about is it's it's not this sort of just this internal process. The reality is that whenever there's been a, a leftist turn in Latin American countries, you know, with I guess the original pink tide and what some are calling the the new pink tide, with you could say Gustavo Petro in Colombia, maybe Lula more recently, uh, Xiomara Castro got voted in as Honduran president last year, is that when there's sort of a threat to this entrenched power, there's usually this violence and under sort of undermining campaign that's launched by the right wing. You look at some of the the violence against leftist governments recently. I mean, just last week, Colombian vice president uh, vice president Francia Marquez survived an assassination attempt. They planted a bomb near her house. And she also had survived another assassination attempt in 2019 during their, their president, presidential campaign. Um, the Argentina vice president, Kirchner, she was someone tried to kill her at, at a rally last September. And then you look at Bolivia where there's, there's these right-wing thugs that have been destroying government buildings and union headquarters and attacking, you know, these real racially motivated attacks against indigenous communities. So that I guess that's internally, but we can't forget the long arm of, of US imperialism either. 
And, you know, it's not that they work just against Dustiel, but it's usually the case with coups against leftist leaders in Latin America is that the US is involved in some way. It's not an exaggeration to say that basically every overthrow or coup against a democratically elected leader in Latin America has at least some US involvement. Um, even with Peru, the US ambassador to Peru, Lisa Kenner, who's a, a former CIA agent that has this long history of, of meddling in all these foreign affairs on behalf of the US, she met with the Peruvian defence minister the day before the coup. And then following the impeachment and the swearing in of, of Boluarte, the new, the new coup president, that the, the US government was, was really quick to openly recognise this new government and support it. You had these high-ranking advisers like Brian Nichols for the US government who welcomed Boluarte you know, in press conferences and in, in statements that they made. And you look at the Organisation of American States, which is supposed to be this independent body that oversees elections and, and democracy in the area, is essentially dominated by the US. And they were also quick to recognise the new coup government. I mean, this shouldn't, this shouldn't come as a, as a surprise to, to anyone, I guess, in US imperialism in Latin America. You look at their involvement in coups, even in just the last decade or last 20 years, that they were you know, heavily involved in the coup against, an attempted coup against Chavez in Venezuela in 2002. They played a huge role through the Organization of American States in the coup against Evo Morales in, in Bolivia in 2019, in Honduras a bit further back in 2009 against Manuel Zelaya. And then even... I mean, it's not even limited to left leaders. They even engineered a coup in Guatemala in 2015 against a, a right-wing president, uh, President uh, Molina, because he wasn't being sufficiently subservient to, to I guess, U.S. imperialism. So, yeah, I guess that's also the external forces that work against leftist governments in Latin America, and it was you know, no different with uh, the recent coup in Peru. The U.S. is essentially always involved, in some way at least. Well, finally, Ben, is there support coming from those countries that surround Peru? You spoke about Eva Morales trying to get in, but he was blocked. In what sense is that support? That's hard because, obviously, you know, it would be difficult to send material support in the sense of supporting protesters, but I guess there's, there's a huge level of solidarity. I mean, there's been protests in other, in sort of other countries as well against the coup government or, you know, sort of denouncing the, the coup, um, as well as most of the leaders of these, as I mentioned before, most of the leaders of these left-wing or leftist governments all have publicly condemned the coup and also, I guess, exposed the role that the US has played or and also the role that this I guess you'd say like business class has played in in engineering um, the ousting of of Castillo. So this is not gonna go away in a hurry, is it? No. No, well, you know, the violence is continuing on the part of um, the military and police and the the protesters are continuing despite despite all this violence. I don't see them ending, ending anytime soon.
Thank you very much, Ben. No worries. I'd just like to uh, give a quick plug for anyone who wants to keep following um, what's going on. It's because it's hard, you know, it's hard to find English English language coverage. It's not, I guess, by your bourgeois media. Um, I'd recommend everyone follow Green Left. Um, there's been coverage coverage about Peru on there. I guess there's not many news organisations in Australia like Green Left that cover the sort of international news from a, the grass, a grassroots perspective. So anyone interested in uh, following what's what's happening or what's happened, um, I'd recommend going to Green Left. But, uh, thanks for having me, Jan. And Ben Radford is an activist and, as he says, a journalist with Green Left Weekly. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together... Let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. St Kilda Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First Peoples artists, including Christine Arnu, Jen Cassadaly, Dean Brady and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with hoodoo gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man and heaps more. Free and all ages, see the program at stkildafestival.com.au. St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter. The long-anticipated announcement came this month that in the northern spring or summer, the Japanese government was planning to begin the controversial release of more than 1.25 million tonnes of water from the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean with the expected anger amongst local fisher communities and countries in the region. For an understanding of what this release would mean, I spoke with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, co-founder of the Nobel Peace Prize winning organisation International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, as well as a number of other anti-nuclear organisations. Tillman, I'd like to start with a photo. It shows a site in Japan which holds a contaminated wastewater at the site of the Fukushima Daiatsu nuclear plant. It's an absolutely amazing photo to me, hard to comprehend that there's more than 1,000 tanks containing more than 1.25 or more million 
tonnes of contaminated water. They are huge and, in a sense, to me, threatening or menacing. Yeah, it is um, pretty scary. And, you know, they need to add one of those tanks roughly every week and the water's still accumulating. So, yeah, the last figure I saw was 1.32 million tonnes. And it obviously will keep being added to. So there's certainly no shortage of it. And where is this site compared to the disaster area? Well, it's right just sort of up the hill. The nuclear power plants, when they built them, to make it basically cheaper, even though it was much less safe, they excavated what had been a hill basically coming right up to the coast. All of the nuclear power plants and the supporting infrastructure, the cooling mechanisms, the turbines, all of that is down close to sea level, which was obviously the problem. It sort of was dug down 30 metres so there's a hill up just behind the, the reactors on the grounds of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Um, that's where all these tanks are. And they say that they're running out of room, but, you know, that's a very arbitrary and, and I think not an accurate statement given that there's considerable areas of, of con- land that's contaminated around, you know, that are available and that are not essentially usable for anything much else uh, at present. So they say they're running out. It's really an excuse, I think, um, to proceed with this dumping plan. And um, I think that's the, that's the current situation. When did they start storing the water in these tanks? And how does it work? How do they get the water out of where it's, it's cooling the, sure. the equipment? Well, how do they get it into the tanks? Yeah, well, normally there are a couple of circuits of water. There's water that's cooled, you know, that the reactors are sitting in and, and being constantly cooled. And then basically a big kettle is what the reactor is. I mean, it generates hot water, you know, steam. And, and that hot water, gen, you know, drives turbines that generates electricity. That's the plan. And those circuits of water are meant to be completely contained. You know, they're not normally open to the environment or the outside at all. So what happened when the explosions happened and the, the, the tsunami and earthquake damage was that essentially all of that integrity of that containment is disrupted and the normal cooling that reactors need constantly to avoid an uncontrolled reaction, further explosions, was disrupted. So what did they do? I mean, originally in, in the emergency, they they tried all sorts of extraordinary makeshift measures and it ended up basically dumping with helicopters and squirting with fire engines through the blown-off roofs of the reactor buildings, water down into the, the reactors to cool them. They had to start using seawater to do that because there was nothing else available and that, you know, signalled... That confirmed essentially the end of those reactors because of the corrosion and damage that seawater causes, but it was absolutely essential at the time. So what happens now is that because the reactors are below a hill and there's quite large natural ground flows, there's a river just nearby to the south, and there's very large natural flows of water uh, through the ground, and these reactors, remember, are, are low. They're sitting just next to a hill that's been excavated. There's constantly groundwater running into the damaged and leaking containment structures 
at the bottom of the building and there's water that they have to pour in to keep the cooling going. Because the fuel rods are no longer you know, neatly contained in their zirconium alloy cladding um, with the radioactive material inside, because that's all been disrupted and that's a big molten fragmented mess, the products of, of the radioactive products, the hundreds of different radioactive products that are generated in the reactor basically are open to the water. So that cooling water they then that's now warmed helps to cool the reactors and is contaminated by all these materials, they pump up into these tanks which are you know on the hill just, just behind. Initially, after the disaster, there were about 500 cubic metres, 500 tonnes of, of water every day that was accumulating and in, pouring into the reactor buildings from the combination of what was being added plus groundwater leaking in. That's now been reduced by a couple of means, by a, a wall to, to try and prevent ingress from the seaside um, and also an ice wall, the idea of they've put these tubes deep into the ground around the sort of sides of the reactor that are away from the sea particularly that are cool, cool and use a huge amount of electricity to create a layer of, of frozen soil around the reactor that you know to reduce the amount of water flowing in through the groundwater. That's been partially successful so that the average water flow now is about 120, 140 cubic metres a day but when it rains heavily, that goes up to, you know, closer to 300 or so. So that water is now contaminated with all sorts of radioactive stuff and, you know, they have to do something with it. So up till now, they've been storing it in what are largely, particularly initially, pretty makeshift tanks, you know, cobbled together very quickly, bolted, not welded, lots of problems, lots of wrong connections made, lots of leaks and a really complicated mess because these were put together very hastily. They're not sort of built to last. They're not sort of seismically safe. You know, they're nothing like the, the massive tanks that Japan has, for example, for its National Petroleum Reserve. You know, it's got these huge, properly welded, seismically safe tanks that are much bigger than these, you know, that it will last for centuries. These are sort of makeshift cobbled together, you know, cheap kind of, do-it-yourself job, really, um, constructed on site in great haste, particularly the early ones. So there is a problem with the tanks. You know, they're, they're pretty shoddy and they leak and there's lots of them. That's the problem that we're dealing with. But why, after all these years, is it still necessary to cool down? Is it the react reactors? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, you know, the radioactive stuff is all still in there apart from what's been sort of leaking into the environment and the gases that were blasted into the air with the initial hydrogen explosions that are generated by you know, contact of the fuel with, with, with water and, and, and air. So there's now, rather than sort of nicely organised um, fuel rods with a coating, you know, the radioactive material inside with a metal alloy coating that are organised in neat racks, you know, in a very precisely engineered structure. Th these are now disrupted. The surface has been broken for many of them and this sort of congealed mass of, of fuel has gone through the bottom of the primary containment vessel and sits at the bottom of the structure. For, for most of them that appears to be the case. Um, 
most of the damage reactors. So, so the, the, the fuel is no longer in an organized way where it can be cooled by the, by the normal channels. There are unpredictable possibilities of reactions heating up and speeding up. That fuel will need to be cooled for many decades, many decades hence. So it's a problem because it's so radioactive that the decommissioning work, you know, to try and remove that molten fuel, you know, hasn't even started. They haven't even comprehensively been able to map where it all is because even for robots, um, it's such an intensely radioactive environment uh, that it's only very recently that they've been able to produce sort of any real images or any sense of, of what's going on with that fuel because even for robots, it's so radioactive that they, you know, they break down within a matter of minutes or an hour at best. Um, so it's, it's extremely difficult. What they have been able to do is, which is a big relief for the world, I think, is that the design of the Fukushima reactors is, is, um, a bit of a nightmare in this kind of accident scenario in that the, when fuel rods, the fuel rods in, in a reactor are put in, they last about a year, a year to 18 months, um, and then they have to be changed. And when they're pulled out, they're still, in, in fact, they're more radioactive than they were to start with, uh, much more radioactive, and they're also still very hot. And they need to be actively cooled by circulating water also for, for several more years before they can be put into dry casks and stored on land, you know, where just air cooling, passive air cooling is sufficient. So these spent fuel pools, it's basically a big swimming pool, that these spent fuel assemblies sit in for a couple of years with water circulating to keep them cool, they contain most of the radioactivity on the site, about two-thirds, 70% roughly, of all of the radioactivity on this site. Uh, at the time of the disaster, was not in the reactors, it was in the spent fuel. And the worry about them is not only are they sitting on top of the reactors, these big swimming pools are sort of parked on top, makes it easy to you know, lift them up by crane out of the reactor and plop them in the, the spent fuel pool, but it means that they're highly vulnerable to anything that goes wrong in the reactor or you know, in, 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 the, in the building because they're sitting up on top. And some of those were contaminated with debris, they were tipped and leaning, there were serious risks of, of them collapsing and the cooling to them was also disrupted. They've now managed to basically get the spent fuel out of those ponds, so that's a significant development in the site uh, in terms of its safety and its vulnerability to further earthquakes and tsunamis, which that part of the world's obviously very prone to. But in terms of the fuel that's in the reactors, you know, really just starting what's going to be a, a decades, many decades long process. Even TEPCO has a time frame of 40 years for the decommissioning, which nobody believes and keeps being drawn out and they still have no plans for. And every target time gets delayed. And I think it's actually much more realistic that long term, rather than the fuel being able to be removed, what's probably going to need to happen and it would probably be better to plan for now, I reckon, is an entombment, you know, a containment, essentially encasing the whole of that damaged and radioactive and fragmented mess in some sort of physical structure to try and prevent further leakage into the environment. Essentially what's happened in Chernobyl, where essentially the, the whole reactor 
including the molten fuel melted through down the bottom, is you know is encased in a huge, complicated structure. That's you know it's an ongoing problem. They've just the European Union has largely funded the current new one at Chernobyl, which was completed about a about a decade ago. It's projected to last for about a century. After that, they'll have to you know cough up another. 50 billion euros or so to build another one or update it. So it's an ongoing problem. But I, I suspect that decommissioning these reactors is probably un, unrealistic. But that still leaves us with the water and the quality of that water that's being touted to be put into the Pacific Ocean. What does it contain at the moment and what do they have to do before they can actually release it into the ocean? Well, that water is obviously contaminated highly with many, many different um, radioactive materials, you know, some with very short, some with very, very long half-lives. The plan that they've announced is that uh, the water is to be processed through a, a system called ALPS, a sort of advanced liquid processing system, to, to remove most of those radioactive uh, products, but not carbon-14, which is a very long-lived one, nearly 6,000 years half-life, or tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, which is difficult to remove. But there's really no evidence at the moment that the system is up is up to what they claim it's going to be up, that it's going to be able to clean the water. At the moment, what we know is that most of the tanks that have been treated, over 60% of them, are still significantly above the regulatory limits for various isotopes and in some cases up to 19,000 times higher than those regulatory limits. We have very limited data on the tanks for very limited periods of time. They haven't, they've only measured a few components in each of them. Very little transparency. There's just been uh, an independent scientific expert panel set up by the Pacific Islands Forum, you know, very concerned about this plan, given the history of nuclear testing and, and nuclear dumping in the region, but, you know, they, they don't want any more. So they appointed a, a very august group of ex independent experts who've recently reviewed all of the available evidence, had meetings with TEPCO and the government, tried to make sense of, of what we know, what we don't know, you know, whether this plan is can be said to be safe, as the government and TEPCO claim. And essentially the panel concluded that the data is really shonky, it's really inconsistent, it's really incomplete, there's lots of data missing. We basically don't know. We don't have a comprehensive picture of what's in those tanks. And so far there's clearly evidence that the ALPS system to remove those isotopes doesn't work as it's supposed to and there's no clear plan for how to overcome those deficiencies, TEPCO and the International Atomic Energy Agency seem to just be happy with saying, well, we'll just you know, put it through ALPS again and again and again and again and again as often as we need to, but with no real evidence that that will work. And they've done really biased and limited measurements on the tanks that they've provided to that expert panel. There were you know, many months when there was no data at all, there, even though there's you know, they're supposed to be assessing 62 different radioactive materials. They almost never measured more than nine of them. They always measured at the end of filling and they only measured the water and not the sludges 
you know, the, the muddy stuff, because especially early on, uh, there was a lot of solid debris and, and sludge in, in that water. And it's more, and it's very likely that, that that is much more radioactive than the water. There's, we have no idea of how much sludge there is, you know, and what's in the sludge. This is not likely to be uniform, you know, over time or in, or in between tanks. You know, this is an accident situation. This is a not normal, smooth, regulated operations. This is, this is a mess, you know, with makeshift measures to try and deal with with an uncontrolled situation. These are not normal operations. So we basically don't know what's in the tanks, um, was the conclusion of the expert panel. We don't know that the ALP system is going to work as intended. We don't even know that TEPCO can you know, adequately measure and characterise what's there. There really isn't any adequate basis to manage this process at the moment. Well, is there any way to stop this plan release? Absolutely there is. You know, I mean this this is a political decision. This is this is the kind of worst option. This is the you know, this is old thinking that should that should have long gone, that dilution is the solution to pollution and that dumping toxic materials in the ocean in a way that clearly has effects across boundaries, national boundaries that can't be contained, that has transgenerational and long-term impacts. No environment should have that material, you know, dumped in an uncontained, uncontrolled way. There are plenty of options that various expert groups in Japan, that the independent expert panel appointed by the Pacific Forum and others have put forward uh, as to how to manage this water. It's clear that they haven't been properly considered those alternatives. Japan is clearly vulnerable to pressure on this. There is widespread concern. You know, the governments of of South Korea, of uh, um, China have, you know, complained very strongly about this. The Pacific Islands Forum is is not happy with this. This is a, a controversial issue. The, there are no less than nine special UN rapporteurs with a range of different responsibilities in human rights and health and environmental protection who have been scathing about this plan. You know, lots of governments that have raised questions about it. But on the current timeline, it seems that that they want to start this uh, probably in March or April, so rather soon. You know, it hasn't started yet. They've only just started building the the pipe, the one-kilometre pipe out in the ocean that they want to discharge this water through. This can all be, you know, stopped, uh, at least paused, while the alternatives are properly considered. And I think there's a real role for the Australian government to join with our Pacific neighbours and, and, and to say to Japan, look, you know, you promised, as, you know, in 1985, the Pacific Islands Forum, that you would not dump radioactive wastes uh, in the Pacific. This is really not an appropriate modern solution to an environmental problem to you know to dump it in the ocean without doubt the worst possible way of trying to deal with this and water is going to continue to accumulate the dilution is talked about as if you know that reduced the radioactivity well it doesn't it's not just about the concentration it's the amounts you know if you dilute the same amount to reduce the concentration yes you you lower the the concentration but you don't reduce the overall amount and the Japanese government has very much just focused on the on tritium, 
claiming that's you know not a major hazard biologically and and is relatively short lived. It, it's got a half life of 12 years, so so it'll decay you know reasonably quickly. Most of us are much more worried about what else is in there, the other stuff that's in there, the cesium and all the other things that are in there apart from the the tritium. So, but this hasn't started yet. This is now's a really important time over the next couple of months for governments, people around the world to urge the Japanese government to, to reconsider this plan and, and to basically put a halt on it, at least for the short term while alternatives are considered. Has the Australian government made any comments on this issue? Not to my knowledge. There have been sort of academic and other pundits in Australia that have sort of chimed in saying this is all fine, but as far as I'm aware, the government hasn't certainly done anything publicly. Whether they've raised raised it privately, I'm, I'm not aware of, of that having happened. Um, I think it needs to. I'll certainly be, be writing to, to Minister Plibersek and, uh, and Jed Carney too, who, who has responsibilities in health, urging the government to, to raise this with, with Japan. Well, as you say, they haven't got much time, have they? No, we need to get on with it. Important issue. And the alternatives are really pretty reasonable. You know, you could build proper, large, seismically safe tanks and store this water. If you stored it for sort of 40, 50 years, the tritium and, and a number of the other shorter-lived isotopes will decay dramatically. You know, not, there'll be 90% roughly less after that period of time when, you know, a discharge would be much more appropriate. Tritium is mainly a, a beta emitter, so these are the radioactive particles don't travel very far. They're stopped by human skin. They're a problem if you if you inhale or ingest them. So what could be done also is that this radioactive water could be used to make concrete where basically the radioactive hazard is then completely contained and people and animals aren't exposed to it because it's in the concrete and it won't come out. You know, used in construction where in places where people aren't in, you know, in close contact with it. Foundations for buildings, bridges, you know, underpinnings for, for roads, you know, that kind of stuff. You could, you could use large amounts of this contaminated water and safely contain it. And even, you know, if the structures end up being demolished or brought down in some decades time, the radioactivity will, will be contained and much less of a hazard. There's ways that you can use bioremediation. There are certain animals, particularly oysters, that are very efficient at concentrating some of the radioactive materials, taking them out of water, ways of solidifying the waste. There's all sorts of options that are available that haven't been adequately explored. This dumping is sort of the dirtiest and the cheapest and the nastiest uh, of the possible ways to deal with this problem. And of course, Tillman, you could always stop building these nuclear power plants and also educate the people of the world what you've been talking about because I'm sure most people are not aware of the consequences all these years later of that disaster. Yes, and we, we you know, we will have to manage this. We have no choice but to manage the, the legacy even if, if there are no nuclear power plants built these legacy issues of contaminated areas of the waste of the facilities and particularly the legacy of accidents like like Fukushima and Chernobyl will be with us for time immemorial. You know, we have to deal with this. But, you know, Japan has a real opportunity 
now, I think, to, to really do the right thing, to manage this in a way that doesn't add to, you know, the radioactive pollution burden, particularly for people who are dependent on fisheries in Pacific countries. Some of these materials, they don't just sit around in the water or accumulate in the sediments, you know, they're actively concentrated up the food chain, sometimes tens of thousands of times, you know, so a fish, a tuna or a turtle or, or, or something at the fairly high up the food chain, you know, it might be 50,000 times more carbon-14 in it than the water that it's swimming in, you know, thousands of times more cesium in it than the water that it's swimming in because these materials, some of them, particularly strontium, cesium, some of the nasty ones, get concentrated and recycled in biological systems. So this is not just all about dump it in the ocean, let it dilute, problem gone away. Tuna contaminated by Fukushima fallout caught off San Diego a couple of years after the, the disaster. It, you know, this stuff moves. It doesn't stay in one place. And you'll be listening to Associate Professor Tilman Ruff. Hi, I am Mr. Silla from Iceland, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us... Every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Go throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Three 3CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on Community Radio is governed by the Community Radio Codes of Practice. The Codes of Practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website, Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Last time I spoke with PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, preparations were in place for another visit to Cuba. Sasha arrived back in Australia to spend holidays with family and today we're going to hear all about the trip. So first, Sasha, just to remind us why your visit to Cuba and, of course, wasn't your first time. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, this was not my first visit to Cuba. So this was in November, December of last year, 2022. Um, this was actually my fourth time visiting the islands. It begins a long time ago. I mean, my family had always been involved in 
solidarity activities relating to Cuba, you know, calling for an end to the US blockade against the islands. And my first trip there was in 2016, so just before I began year 12 with my family. I loved it. It was a fascinating place. And I decided to come back two years later with one of my best friends uh, in 2018. In 2020, I was privileged enough to be able to study there for three months um, as a part of the Casa Cuba program. And this time around, I was coming to conduct research, fieldwork research, so interviews and investigation for my PhD, which I began last year. And the topic of my PhD is called Oceans Apart, Drug Policy and Development in Cuba and the Pacific, Lessons and Opportunities for Cooperation. So just to break down that long title, essentially I'm looking at issues of development in healthcare, education, security uh, in Cuba and the Pacific Islands, comparing their development models. So on the one hand, Cuba's state-oriented development model, socialist development model, and on the other, the neoliberal model that has predominated in the Pacific Islands for quite some time. Within all of that, my specific focus is this issue of drug trafficking and its consequences, chiefly its consequences for public healthcare systems and education systems, but also, you know, expanding to include security, international cooperation, and looking at existing Cuban cooperation with the Pacific Islands, which is related to training up their uh, public health workforce and also educating Pacific students and seeing if there's the possibility of expanding that cooperation in a general sense and possibly to include this issue of drugs as a greater focus. Well, let's start with Cuba itself. Is there a drug problem, an illegal drug problem in Cuba? Well, look, I, in all honesty, could have told you this even before going last year to conduct my research because, I, you know, I've, I've lived there for quite some time over those trips. I can safely say that there is no drug issue in Cuba, no no major drug crisis. I mean, of course, they exist. There are drugs in every country, and, you know, that's something that's incredibly difficult to eradicate entirely. But for all intents and purposes, if you were to compare the, the rates of drug use, drug trafficking, drug uh, health problems in Cuba to any other country in the world, they are negligible to non-existent. Um, in fact, one of my interviewees who was a drug historian said to me, if the US had comparable levels of drug issues that Cuba did, there would be no need to you know, declare any sort of war on drugs or have any of these sort of punitive police measures that are in place in the United States at all. So it's um, quite a different reality. And even compared to Australia, because Australia is actually has quite a serious issue with, with drug use and drug trafficking. Of course, you know, you have to go to the to the right or should I say the wrong places. But you definitely, you know, when even going out at night in Cuba, I was never once approached by anyone trying to sell drugs. I never saw people under the influence. And of course we're talking about illicit substances here. Alcohol and tobacco are different questions, but my research focuses on substances that are considered illegal. But yeah, definitely overall, there is very much the impression and, you know, when you talk to people in the street as well, it will reinforce this notion that there is no major drug situation in Cuba. Is the one reason or more? There are multiple reasons. And of course, like many things in Cuba, the, the, the response to drug trafficking has been multi-sectoral, multifaceted. So it combines a range of very different and diverse actors all working together against this one issue. Now, the reason it's taken so seriously, this issue of drug use, 
does have a bit of a history. Of course, we're particularly talking about pre-1959 drug use in Cuba. So prior to the Socialist Revolution, of course, Cuba was a haven for drug trafficking, drug consumption, chiefly among tourists, but it also did begin to permeate the, the population as well, including quite cheap and nasty drugs like crack. And it was, you know, it was, it was a brothel, it was a, it was a casino and it was a pit for drug trafficking. So when the revolution triumphed in 1959, drugs were associated as one of the key, you know, the key factors or the key influences um, that was related to capitalism in Cuba. So it was targeted very, very seriously, very, very early on, much like prostitution was, much like gambling was, and much like the work of the mafia was as well in other areas such as human trafficking. So pretty much by 1966, that was when the last major anti-drug operation in the early years took place. It was called Operation Candela. That pretty much saw drug use more or less eliminated across Cuba. And of course, you had the occasional you know, marijuana plantation in the countryside um, because, of course, marijuana grows very, very readily in the Cuban climate, which is tropical. Um, but drug use was virtually unheard of, particularly if you talk to the older generations. Everyone I spoke to only knows of issues related to drugs tangentially. They don't actually know anyone personally who has engaged in drug use or been involved in these sorts of problems. But this really, you know, th this was a really serious issue, and we can actually see that reflected in the words of Fidel Castro as well. In fact, he made a number of speeches uh, specifically related to this issue of drug use. Um, you know, he claimed that it was a blight. It's one of the most serious international challenges facing countries around the world, that it leads to nothing but the destruction of socioeconomic development. So again, he was tying in this issue of drug trafficking and its consequences to broader development challenges, and particularly for the global south as well, so the countries of Africa, Latin America and Asia, because Fidel quite rightly stated, you know, there's this onus on producing countries. So countries, for example, like Colombia, Peru and Latin America, where these drugs are produced, but no action is taken in the consuming countries. So, you know, the countries of Europe, of North America, Australia, New Zealand, where the demand is so high. So, you know, it's one thing for the for global South countries to take action against production. But if there's no attempts to seriously address the issue of increasing consumption and demand in the global north, the industrialized countries, well, you just have this, this self-repeating, self-perpetuating cycle. And Fidel foresaw that as early as the 1980s. This is when he began discussing this issue. And the 1980s as well is critical because there was a major scandal in Cuba relating to drug trafficking. And this was really the make or break moment because Cuba could have taken a very different turn in regard to its drug policy. So 1980 was when we had the, or 1986 actually, it was confirmed, but there were suspicions as early as 1980. We have the Ochoa drug scandal. And this involved um, one of the most high-ranking generals involved in the Angolan internationalist mission, so going to support the Angolan government against apartheid South Africa. He was implicated in drug trafficking with um, Pablo Escobar's cartel in Colombia. Now, he claimed it was chiefly to finance the war effort in Angola. They were running low on, on supplies by the 1980s and that they needed these extra finances to keep the war effort going. Uh, but it quickly became quite clear that while that may have been the initial justification or motivation, that him and a number of other 
uh, generals and members of the security service were actually partaking in drug trafficking for personal benefit. Fidel Castro and Raul Castro were really torn. This was a very, very delicate case in Cuba because to have such a high-ranking military figure be implicated in drug trafficking had serious implications for the legitimacy of the revolution. So Fidel had to make a choice. Either these individuals would be punished with serious, serious consequences, or it could be tolerated, and that could open the door to further corruption. And Fidel made the hard decision, but ultimately, I think, the right decision. And he said, we cannot tolerate this in spite of his, you know, this man or Chua's glowing accolades and glowing service in Angola. This issue of drugs simply cannot be tolerated or reintroduced to some sort of normal occurrence in Cuba. And so Ochoa and his conspirators were actually executed by firing squad. We know actually that Fidel and Raul were very close personal friends with Ochoa as well, which made this case all the more controversial and all the more difficult. Um, in fact, Raul was seen crying at the final verdict when they announced that Ochoa would be executed along with his other collaborators. So they, from that point onwards, restructured and re-strengthened their drug policy. Um, Fidel Castro declared that they'd become complacent after the 1960s, after those early drug operations, and that there needed to be a reinforced, redoubled effort to control this issue. And this became particularly important. It came almost at the perfect time, actually, because the special period was just around the corner when the socialist bloc collapsed. Uh, Cuba was left all alone, and it reintroduced some liberal economic reforms into its economy, so opened up small-scale private enterprise. And this, of course, proved to introduce as well more drugs into the country. And this included um, a link to tourism as well. We had tourists trying to introduce drugs into Cuba, chiefly from Europe and Colombia, but also from Miami. Uh, so we had those Miami Cubans, which do get very heavily involved in drug trafficking in the United States, trying to introduce those practices into Cuba once the island opened up a little bit, economically speaking. So thankfully, Cuba reoriented its drug policy at the correct time. In 2003, the Cuban war on drugs was declared um, with three distinct operations. We had Operation Ache, which was a maritime operation, Operation Gancho Ciego, which was chiefly centred in the airports and the commercial special economic zone of Mariel in Pavana, uh, and Operation Coraza Popular, which was the domestic land-based campaign against domestic drug production. And that, once again, that pretty much broke drug trafficking for the second time in Cuba. And now when I say there was an increase in the 90s, by Cuban standards, it was a considerable increase, but by the standards of any other country, we're talking about still very, very low levels of drug use and drug trafficking compared to any other country. Uh, but by Cuban standards, this was quite a concerning situation, but it was brought under control uh, on the security front. And of course, education and health are even more important. Now, I'm sure we'll get to, to that a bit later, but I do just want to emphasize that drug use is first and foremost perceived as a health issue in Cuba. 
before security services are even involved in, you know, in the case of, for example, a Cuban is found to be using drugs or selling drugs within his community, his neighbourhood will try to get him to attend a mental health or addiction treatment clinic before the security services even have to get involved. So really, the healthcare service, the public healthcare system, is the first port of call. There's a very, very extensive network around Cuba. We're talking over 170 community mental health and addiction treatment clinics. That's an incredible number for Cuba's population of just 11 million people, just over 11 million people. And there are four specialised addiction centres in Havana. So there's one just for men, one just for women, one just for teenagers, and one which is a general clinic that accepts international patients as well. So there's a very, very robust public health care network to treat this issue of drug use, drug addiction, substance abuse. And thankfully, there's a very robust preventive education campaign as well uh, within Cuban schools, beginning as early as primary school. The Cuban uh, education system and the 2015 national plan uh, to tackle addictions in the Cuban education system mandates that schools have to discuss this issue of drugs and a minimum of once every two months. So just to give you an idea, in Australia, I maybe heard about, you know, or or had a drug-related workshop maybe twice in my entire 12 years of, of primary and secondary school. In Cuba, at the very minimum, this issue has to be discussed and reinforced every two months. Some schools do it every week. Some schools do it once a month. Some once a fortnight, depending on Uh, what each school decides, depending on the situation with students in different areas. But this clearly reinforces the notion that, you know, drug use, drug trafficking is is taken to be a very serious issue. And it is constantly raised and addressed and discussed within the Cuban education system. And then once you get to the university level, there is CEDRO, which is the Drug Research Institute in Cuba. Um, I interviewed the head of that of that institute, Dr. Fabelo Roche. He's pretty much the preeminent drug expert in Cuba. He's travelled very widely. Um, his advice is sought after by both Cuban policymakers and other international drug policymakers and academics. And he discussed with me the ways in which this Cedral Research Institute holds workshops and provides the necessary support and referrals for university students if they are found to be engaging in in drug use in one form or another. Chiefly um, involved in the public health care students, public health um, doctoral and um, medical graduates, because in Cuba... And within that public health, with public health and public education more broadly, um, doctors in Cuba are role models for everyone. You know, it's a very well respected job and Cuban universities always try to make sure that they are producing good role models in their doctors. So they take it very seriously when they find out that for whatever reason, uh, a student is abusing some sort of illicit substance. That I think is the overview of the different aspects of Cuban drug policy. And of course, as you've pointed out, Sasha, the health system in Cuba is a very important aspect of the whole society. And it doesn't mean that there aren't drugs available. Cuba, because of the blockade and other issues, has to produce their own drugs for treatments. And then we had the COVID. They're on their own virtually, weren't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this this has always been something that has plagued Cuba, that has plagued Cuba's development and that has plagued, you know, the entire island because, of course, the health of a country is so critically important um, to everything else that happens um, and, and the rest of national development as well. Cuba is, of course, remarkable because it's produced such an amazing and comprehensive and a universal public health care system that is available to everyone on the island. But as you rightfully said, the US blockade has meant that there are really severe shortages of certain medications, and some of them are actually most of these shortages are common medications. So, you know, for the more serious interventions, surgeries, um, and illnesses, thankfully, Cuba tends to have enough medicine. Not always, but but thankfully they tend to. But with, with more basic things, even you know things like vitamin C tablets, paracetamol, things like this are really, really scarce and sometimes non-existent in Cuban hospitals and Cuban family clinics. And this is because Cuba has such a difficult time procuring these medications uh, because the blockade uh, infringes on their right to, to trade with other countries. You know, there are countries and companies, as, as we know, that simply do not trade with Cuba and do not provide Cuba with their products because they're worried that the United States government will either fine them millions, potentially billions of dollars, depending on how big the, the enterprise is, or that they'll be banned from trading in the United States, which, of course, very few companies want because it's such a lucrative market. So if they have to choose between the U.S., and Cuba, of course, these companies are going to choose the United States. Now, in the case of drug addiction treatment, now this, I was told by my interview, um, my interviewees, is one of the few areas where this medication shortage does not actually affect treatment because Cuba actually tries to avoid the use of medication or other, um, or other drugs within their treatment for substance addiction where possible. They prefer to rely on psychological methods, the humanist approach that involves a lot of collaborative therapies, group therapies, inspirational interviews, um, you know, attempts to get people involved in work again, as opposed to things like substance substitution, which is, you know, for example, attempts to replace drug use with a similar medication or a similar product to eventually wean them off dependency. In Cuba, it's... The goal is abstinence, which is a very different goal from many other countries. Um, for example, you know, in, in a lot of European countries, in the United States, there has more or less been this move to simply live with all types of drugs, including ones that cause a lot of harm, not only health harm, but also societal harm. Uh, but in Cuba, the aim is, is abstinence from drug use. So there is an attempt to limit the use of medications and these other similar products as much as is possible. So there actually isn't a lot of medication needed within the Cuban health response uh, to substance addiction. But as you were saying, you know, this, this shortage of medications is really, really severe. It is at a crisis level in Cuba. You know, when I, before I came, I asked uh, my friends over there if there was anything that they needed. And all they said was the one thing we really need is things like Panadol, things like vitamin C tablets, as I was mentioning earlier, these really basic products that we take for granted here uh, that Cuba simply can't import or can't import a lot of because of the blockade. Um, so it's, it's a really severe situation. Of course, the healthcare system is still recovering from the significant strain that COVID caused, where a lot of medications and a lot of these painkillers were used up to, um, of course, to help people who were suffering through COVID. So it's a really, really complex situation for the healthcare system at the moment. Of course, you know, they are still maintaining their very, very 
robust indicators in life expectancy, maternal health, infant health, um, all of these things thankfully do not appear to have been adversely impacted, uh, particularly when you compare it to other countries around the world. And now COVID, COVID numbers only number between about 6 and 15 a day, sometimes, sometimes even lower. So thankfully, the, the situation hopefully looks like it's, it's stabilising. What did you learn about how Cuba managed the pandemic and also the stories we've heard of Cuban doctors going to other countries to help them in their fight against the pandemic? This is really important and I think it deserves to be highlighted uh, because Cuba, as, as we said, is it's an underdeveloped, not only is it an underdeveloped global south country, but it is a country under blockade, under one of the longest, most unjust and inhumane and illegal blockades in the history, um, in, in recent history, if not in the history of the world. You know, there are very few other countries around the world. There are some, but there are very few with the characteristics of Cuba, which has so little to, you know, so little in terms of the capacity for domestic um, self-sufficiency. And, and yet at the same time, it has to face these really egregious sanctions and embargo-related challenges to international trade and import and export. Thankfully, as, as I was saying, the situation with COVID has stabilised immensely. And this was in large part due to Cuba's biopharmaceutical prowess. Now, Fidel Castro in the 1980s really began to invest heavily in this biopharmaceutical sector. He wanted Cuba to become a power, a medical power. And I think it definitely has become that. So Cuba produces a range of really innovative, domestically made, domestically developed medications, including we have, for example, a lung cancer vaccine produced from the venom of the Cuban black scorpion which is native to, to Cuba. It's a remarkable feat. It's the only country in the world that has produced a lung cancer vaccine. But even though Cuba has produced this, it cannot export it to other countries. And in particular, the United States, where lung cancer is a really serious issue, the United States government will not allow any sort of commercial agreement that would allow Cuba to export this vaccine to U.S. hospitals. It's, um, you know, it is a crime. And it is a violation of people's human rights in the United States that there is a miracle drug available just a few kilometres across, you know, the Florida Strait, and yet they cannot access it, and they're going to die just because of the political machinations of the U.S. government and of the Cuban expat community in Florida. Now they've also produced, you know, a range of really innovative, like creams, for example, for arthritis using shark cartilage, and then these other sort of joint issues and skin conditions like rashes. So there's a range of really, really exciting biopharmaceutical developments in Cuba, and of course that reached its peak during COVID when Cuba produced not one, but now by this point five different. COVID-19 vaccines. Now, the most well-known ones and the ones that have been exported for use in other countries are Soberana, which is the main one, which means sovereign, and Abdallah is the other main one, which is named after uh, a figure from the Cuban independence wars. So these vaccines have a very, very high efficacy, 91 to 92% once you take the full schematic of the vaccine. So that's three to four doses, depending on your age. And I spoke with all the Cubans, you, my Cuban friends, my Cuban colleagues. They have all received three to four doses. All of them indicated that, you know, if they got COVID, and there, there were quite a lot of cases, you know, it was one in 10 Cubans were infected with COVID-19, but they only had very 
very light symptoms after having had the complete dose of the Cuban vaccines uh, because they are very, very effective. The Cuban scientific community has a lot of experience with developing vaccines for other diseases, for example, dengue and yellow fever as well. You know, they were very well placed to create all of these different COVID-19 vaccines. And as you said, they export these, not only the vaccines, but they export their own medical personnel to other countries around the world. And this was critical during COVID-19. So we saw a number of African countries and Latin American countries, just to name a few. We have Venezuela, Nicaragua, Mexico, um, Argentina. Uh, in Latin America, in Africa, we had about 15, 20 countries, South Africa, Angola, Namibia, Congo, a number of countries in West Africa, Guinea, Senegal, all of which uh, received Cuban doctors. Um, sometimes just one medical team, sometimes it was several hundred or several thousand Cuban doctors to face COVID-19. And we've actually seen the really remarkable effectiveness and the clear success that they had because this has actually led to new opportunities of cooperation. For example, in Mexico, a Cuban medical team, about 200 Cuban doctors were sent over during COVID. The Mexican government has now permanently hired 500 Cuban doctors to station throughout the country, um, and particularly in rural and indigenous-dominated areas uh, where the healthcare system is really struggling in Mexico. And in the case of Italy, uh, where, of course, Italy was abandoned by its EU neighbours, no one was sending assistance to Italy. In fact, the country was virtually blockaded because it became such a hotspot for the spread of COVID-19. But it was a Cuban medical team that was sent, and they were sent to northern Italy. But since then, the local government in Calabria, in southern Italy, which, um, which has always suffered a lot more in terms of um, a resource scarcity and issues with public health compared to the northern states in Italy, uh, northern provinces, so Calabria has now permanently hired a team of Cuban doctors to support their public health care network across southern Italy. So, you know, this is a clear indication that Cuba's response to COVID and Cuba's medical internationalism has had really significant success, even in a country like Italy, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, should have had the capacity to face COVID. But of course, they privatised their healthcare system. They neoliberalised a lot of the healthcare provision and service provision for Italians. And that led to a really, really dire situation. Uh, but it's really heartwarming to see that even a country like Italy, you know, which is so tangled up in the politics of the United States and the European Union, is willing and able to go to Cuba and cooperate in, on such a vital area as public health. And you've been listening to part one of my interview with PhD candidate Sasha Gillis-Lakakis about his recent visit to Cuba. Next week, part two. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.